Welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. The Listener's Commentary is a crowd-funded Bible teaching effort in order to put down-to-earth Bible teaching into the hands of as many people as possible. And the Listener's Commentary is made possible by the generosity of folks who regularly pray and financially give so that this resource can be given away for free. So thanks a ton to those of you who support this ministry. And if you have been impacted in some way by this ministry, would you prayerfully consider becoming part of the team of supporters so that this ministry can continue to grow and increase? In this particular recording, we are going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10. through 10. Here, Peter continues to describe the new identity that God's people in Christ have. In the preceding section, Peter called Christians to live in keeping with their new birth and the new family that that new birth ushered them into. And the way they're supposed to live in keeping with that is loving one another and getting rid of anything that is opposed to such love. In that context, Peter also called them to be nourished on the Word of God so that, that Christians can grow, specifically grow in re regard to the salvation they've been given. And they should do that because they've tasted that the Lord is good and kind. That's the preceding context immediately before this. Well, here in verses 4 through 10 of chapter 2, Peter continues describing that new identity with loads of biblical language from the Old Testament. And he does so to help us understand who we are as Christians and then the responsibility that that identity entails. So, verse 3 ended with a mention of the Lord. Since you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. Well, he continues then here in verse 4 by describing their coming to him and specifically who they have come to and what that means for them now as a people. So he says in verse four, and coming to him, that is to the Lord, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by people, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. So they have come to the Lord and Peter uses this imagery of a living stone. He says, coming to the Lord is like coming to a stone that's alive. And he's going to use this stone imagery here for Jesus and then is going to interact with several Old Testament passages that you could think of as like stone texts. They're texts that mention stone and texts that were connected by, uh, to the Messiah. And so as Peter develops the imagery over the next couple of verses, what he's going to say is Christians... Um, as God's people and in Christ, they themselves are like stones and they are actually being built into the new temple for God's service. But all of that begins here in verse 4 with what he says about Jesus. And Jesus is described as a living stone. Not a literal stone, obviously, but a figurative stone, a stone that's alive, a stone that could walk and talk and breathe. That's Jesus. He's a living stone. But he's also a stone that has been rejected by people. But at the same time, even though they rejected him, he has been chosen and precious by God himself, chosen to be honored by God. Now, this description of Jesus as a living stone will set up the use of the Old Testament quotes in the verses below. It also reminds us, the way he's described here, that rejection by people 
doesn't necessarily say anything about a person's true worth. Here's Jesus, rejected by people, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. Right? So verse 4 is the first half of the sentence, and it describes Jesus. The next half, verse 5, states then what is now true of those in Jesus. They too are like living stones, and they are being built into a new temple. Look what he says in verse 5. So, you also, so coming to him as to a living stone, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, notice all the temple language, house, priesthood, sacrifices. This is the idea of God's people in Christ now are the new temple that are carrying out the service to God in this world, all right? And so he describes uh, believers here as being built up as a spiritual house. Um, And obviously the word spiritual, the adjective spiritual before house, could simply mean like figurative as opposed to literal, But probably it means way more than that, particularly in view of the consistent teaching in the New Testament about God's people in Christ being a new temple where God's spirit dwells, right? Like Ephesians chapter 2.20, you're a new temple and you're a house for God by his spirit. Or 1 Corinthians 3.16, that you, don't you know that you're the, you all, there it's plural, you all are the temple of God, the very dwelling place of God by his spirit and that he lives in you. So in view of that consistent New Testament teaching that God's people are a new temple where God's spirit dwells, that's probably the sense Peter has here. You are being built up as a spiritual house. That is a house for the very spirit of God. Um, And you're also a holy priesthood, he says. So you're a spiritual house for or unto a holy priesthood. What what was the role of priest? What does a priest do? If we're not super familiar with the Old Testament and the idea of priests under the Old Testament that was familiar in the ancient world because people understood what priest's role was, it could be confusing to us. Well, here's what a priest's job was. A priest's job was to represent God to the people and to represent the people to God. The priest was that intermediary that stood between God and the people, representing both to each other. Uh, And so now those in Christ, those of us who are Christians, we are priests. We carry out that role. We represent God to people and we represent people back to God. That's the idea of what a priest's job is. In verse 9, Peter will make it clear that he has Exodus 19.6 in mind. So we'll see that here in a few short verses. And there in Exodus 19.6, Israel is described as a kingdom of priests. That is, what the priests were for the nation of Israel, Israel as a whole was for the world. They were a kingdom of priests set in the midst of the world to sort of represent God to the world and then to try to capture up the... The, the needs of the world back to God. That was Israel's responsibility under the old covenant. Well, now in Christ, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have that role. We bring God to the world and we bring the world to God. And he also says here in verse five that that means we're supposed to offer spiritual sacrifices. So we're a spiritual house. We're a holy priesthood. We offer spiritual sacrifices. And Peter, probably like Paul, 
in Romans 12, 1 and 2 has the idea of our lives being offered to God as living sacrifices. That's probably what Peter is thinking of. If you were to press him, what do you mean by spiritual sacrifices? What are the sacrifices, Peter? Well, it's our lives given um, on behalf of God for the sake of the world to represent God to the world and to bring the world to him. And so we offer our lives as spiritual sacrifices. And Peter says they're acceptable to God. That is, they are pleasing. That word acceptable literally means pleasing. And there's pleasing to God specifically through Jesus Christ. So Peter has said that Jesus is like a living stone. And in him, we also are like living stones. We are a people who are put together as a bunch of stones and form a new temple in the world to bring God to the world and the world to God. That's who we are in Christ. Now, in verses 6 through 8, then, Peter is going to ground all of this in Scripture. What he does is he connects it to several Old Testament texts where the word stone is used or a stone was promised and that stone is connected to the Messiah. So that's where all this is going. So look, he says in verse six, for this is contained in scripture. Um, in other words, what he has just said about Jesus being a stone and us being stones in him, that's contained in scripture. And in what follows then here in chapter 2 of 1 Peter are three direct quotes from the Old Testament plus two obvious allusions to Old Testament passages. All right. So he says this. The first quote is from Isaiah 28. He says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a choice stone. That is a chosen stone, right? Jesus was a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and precious in the sight of good. So I'm laying in Zion a chosen stone, a precious cornerstone. And the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is Isaiah 28, 16. And in its original context, the passage speaks about the foundation of truth and righteousness that exposes the lies of those who trust in other things besides God. They trust in other resources. They trust in other wisdom. They trust in other covenants. They trust in other ideas. And that leads to perversion and injustice and unrighteousness. But God is a, is a God of truth and justice. So at some point, he's going to lay a chosen stone, a precious cornerstone in Zion. Zion was the name for specifically the hill within Jerusalem on which the temple set. And it was the original kind of territory of the city of Jerusalem. And so the hill of Zion now becomes the hill of God's people, the hill where uh, God himself dwells in the temple. And so at some point, God's going to lay a new stone. It's going to be a cornerstone. That is the foundation stone that sets the direction and shape and size of the building. And so he's going to lay a new stone for a new temple uh, and it's going to be based on those who believes in him, who trusts in him, and they won't be put to shame. They won't be disgraced. They won't be uh, um, shamed or dishonored because of their faith in him. And so Peter is then applying this text from Isaiah 28 to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. He is the stone that God appointed or God laid in Zion that became the cornerstone for God's new people and God's new temple. And notice the connection with the way Peter describes Jesus in verse 4. Chosen and precious. 
Well, the same is true with the cornerstone, chosen and precious. Then Peter goes on to connect this to two other stone texts, um, which was a very common Jewish way of linking passages together, right? Key words that revolved around similar themes. Well, that's what Peter does. He takes two other texts where the word stone was used and that were connected to the Messiah, and he connects those to Jesus as well. And what he specifically does is he connects these next two passages to show how unbelievers responded to God's chosen stone, Jesus, and what the result is or the outcome is for them because of their unbelief. So verse 7, this precious value then, in other words, the honor and preciousness of this cornerstone that was just mentioned here in verse 6, this precious value then is for you who believe, right? The believers won't be put to shame. This cornerstone is precious. So this value, this precious value is for believers. But what about unbelievers? Well, but for unbelievers, then he quotes a couple more texts. For unbelievers, a stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So the first quote in the last little bit of verse 7 there, a stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Well, that, that quote is from Psalm 118, verse 22. And that particular psalm really is a, a key messianic psalm. Several lines from it show up throughout the New Testament. In fact, Jesus actually applies this very uh, line that we have here to himself um, after he tells a parable directed at the Jewish leadership. You can find that parable and Jesus' use of this line from Psalm 118 in Matthew 21, 42. And Jesus applies it to himself, basically saying, that's me. I'm the stone the builders rejected, and you, Jewish leadership, you're the builders doing the rejecting. That's what Jesus is doing there in Matthew 21. The imagery is of stonemasons building a wall or a building, and there's this large, huge stone that they decide it's, it's unfit for use, and they cast it. They're not going to use it. We're going to leave that stone be. It's unfit for use. For whatever reason, they reject it. But it turned out to be such a good stone that it actually was the very first stone laid down that set the entire shape and direction of the building. So another builder comes along, in this case, God, who says, you rejected that stone? That's the best stone. And it becomes the cornerstone that sets the entire shape, size, and direction of the building, the cornerstone. So God chose Jesus to be the cornerstone of his new temple in Zion, his, that is, his people, even though the builders, Jewish leadership and anyone else who rejects him, rejected Jesus, that stone. And because they didn't believe in him, he became for them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That quote there in verse 8 is from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. And in its original context, it's actually encouraging the people of Isaiah's day to trust in the Lord. And for those who do so, the Lord will be a sanctuary, a place of safety and refuge. Uh, and, and immediately in Isaiah's day, they're going to be the Lord's going to be a place of safety and refuge from the Assyrian army who's threatening to attack and who Isaiah has been talking about. Peter will actually quote more from Isaiah 8 
later in chapter two. So we'll come back to this text in Isaiah 8 a little bit more. But that's the idea. Um, But because they rejected him, because they didn't believe in him, well, those who don't trust in the Lord, then the Lord himself actually becomes a stumbling stone, a stone they trip over to their own destruction. That's the idea. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so they trip over the stone to their own doom, their own destruction. So you put all three of these texts together, and here's what you get from Peter by stringing these texts together. God chose and placed Jesus to be the true cornerstone of his new people and his new temple. For those who trust him, honor and safety. But for those who reject him, falling and destruction and being ensnared. And then Peter says in the second half of verse 8, he explains why. Uh, why do they stumble? Why are they destroyed? Why do they, they fall to their own doom? Well, they do so, he says, because they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this, they were also appointed. In other words, all of this happens. This dishonor, this falling, this rock of offense, this happens because they disobey the message about Jesus. They are disobedient to the word the message about Jesus. And then he says, and to this they were, they were appointed. That is, to this end, to this stumbling over the stone, well, that's what their unbelief and their disobedience leads to. Because they haven't believed in the message about Jesus and they disobey that message, that leads to stumbling and destruction. In fact, the word translated appointed here in verse 8 is actually the same word translated Uh, lay in verse 6, I am laying in Zion a choice stone. Well, God chose and laid Jesus as the stone. They rejected him, and thus they are uh, set, appointed, laid out to, uh, to destruction because of their disobedience. And so, just as God appointed Jesus as a cornerstone, in contrast, unbelievers are appointed to following and stumbling. But not believers. Not believers. Peter now then, after all of that, returns to the results for those who do trust the stone, those who are being built into a spiritual house. And he describes it once again with language drawn from the scriptures. So this whole section here is just full of Old Testament language and imagery as Peter is helping us understand who we are in Christ. And so he now turns to believers and he's going to describe believers as those being built into a spiritual house, but he's going to do so with language once again from the Old Testament, this time specifically from Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. So I want to read Exodus 19 to you so that you can hear the the, the background of Peter's language in verse 9. All right, so here's Exodus 19, 5 and 6 to set up 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says this, Now then, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words uh, that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So God is speaking to Moses and he tells him, I want you to say these things, Israel. And that language that you just heard from Exodus 19, that language lies behind what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9. So let me read verse 9, and you can hear Exodus 19, 5, and 6 in the background. Peter says this, 
But you, speaking to those now in Christ, speaking to those who are being built into a spiritual household, those who believe in Jesus and trust the stone, the living stone, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So Exodus 19 describes Israel's vocation as God's people. Israel was to represent God to the world. They were a kingdom of priests, right? Like as the priests were among the nation of Israel, so the nation of Israel was among all the nations. They were to represent God to the world. They were a kingdom of priests. They were a holy nation. That is a nation consecrated, dedicated, set apart from all the other nations to be different and distinct. They were God's own possession, his very own people. So now Peter takes that language and says, now that Christ has come, that's, that's a true for those people who are in Christ. So Christ is like the ultimate fulfillment of the story of Israel. And now that you've come into Christ, what's true of him is true of you. And so that vocation that Israel was called to, well, Jesus now is the embodiment of that vocation. And all of those in Jesus share in that same sort of thing. That's who you are, Peter says. So you are a royal priesthood. Um, part of the king's family. So you're royalty, royal priesthood, and you're also priests standing between God and the world, representing God to the world and bringing the world to God. That's in Christ who Christians are. Uh, Christians are a holy nation. That is set apart from the other nations around them and the other cultures around them to be different, to be distinct, to be dedicated to God and used for his purposes uh, according to his values and his way. Holy, right? We talked about holy above. Peter says that we're supposed to live holy lives now that we're God's people. And they belong to God. They're a people for God's own possession, right? Like as Peter says here, a people that belong to God. In And all of this status comes with a vocation, a calling, and a responsibility on God's behalf. Notice what it says, that you have been given this status, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's own possession, to proclaim God's excellencies. That's the vocation, to proclaim God's excellencies, to display his glory, to reflect his light back into the world. The word excellencies is the standard word, actually, for virtue that was used widely in the ancient world. God is full of virtue, all kinds of virtue. And as God's people, we are to display and proclaim his virtues back into the world. That's the idea of this. And then Peter ends this section with another uh, allusion to an Old Testament passage using language, this time from Hosea. He says, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so this derives from the book of Hosea. Hosea's children were supposed to be signs to Israel, and Israel was described as not my people. Hence, uh, Hosea named one of his children that, right? Like, but when God brings redemption, then those who were not his people will be called his people. So, for example, Hosea chapter 2, verse 23 says, 
I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her, her being Israel here, who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And so this language that Peter uses in verse 10 derives from passages like this in Hosea that picture people who were not God's people now being God's people and saying to God, you are my God. And so as those in Christ, we now have been given the status of God's people. And both Paul and Peter apply this language from Hosea to both Jews and Gentiles in Christ. So originally it was talking about Israelites and anybody else, presumably, who wasn't God's people, but who wanted to become part of God's people. But then now in Christ, it extends beyond just Israel to any and everybody who come into Christ and they now are God's people. And so now in Christ, we're God's people. He has had compassion uh, on us and mercy on us, and he's made us his own. And so this whole section here in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, is really a description of the new identity and the new status that, that Christians have been given. They have been connected with Jesus, and so just as he is a living stone, the very cornerstone of God's temple and God's people, they now are God's temple, and they exist to really serve God in the world, and they exist to represent God to the world and to bring the world to God. And so here's really the ultimate message, I think, of this section is that we have been given an identity, and that identity leads to a vocation. Um, our status as God's people and as a new temple and as a royal priesthood, while that status brings us great comfort, great joy, great gratitude, right? Like, God, you've been so compassionate and merciful to me, right? While, uh, while this status and this identity gives us all this comfort, gratitude, and joy, it's not meant to be something we keep to ourselves and use just for our own self-satisfaction. It comes with a vocation, and the vocation is to display the excellencies, the virtues of God back into the world. It comes with the vocation to be really the, the centerpiece of where people meet God and come to God, the new temple, the, to be like priests who gather up um, the, the, the glories of God and display them to the world and who bring the needs of the world up to God, right? Like we're a holy nation that displays the holiness and the wisdom and the goodness of God back into the world. So our new identity leads to a new vocation as God's holy people in this world to display the excellencies of him in the world around us.